You're listening to highlights from the creative process's interview with Professor of Psychology Ian Robertson, author of books on the study of neuroscience, including How Confidence Works, The New Science of Self-Belief. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. Before I researched and this book, I hadn't realized quite what an advantage men have in, in the world because of this fact that on average they're more overconfident and women are more realistic about their own abilities, for example. And there, there are many factors at play in this. All we know from research in terms of pure academic achievement, intelligence is only one factor. Persistence is another. And persistence comes from confidence. And related to confidence is feeling that you can do things in spite of your emotional reactions, in spite of feeling anxious, in spite of having self-doubts, that you have this ability to set a goal and to believe that you can achieve that goal. And that's all learnable. The kind of things that would make the rest of us anxious, the narcissist is so engrossed in their own positive self-perception that they are not phased by these things. But the other thing is about narcissism, particularly in the media, it can create charisma. And charisma gives you status, and status makes you persuasive. And persuasion gets you money and power and all sorts of other things, and these reinforce the charisma. So there's a kind of rather sinister vicious cycle, virtuous to the narcissist and vicious to the rest of us that can really put people who are not fit for power in power because of these superficial supreme overconfidence that is a part of narcissism. A few examples of just what these things are. One of them is is what we pay attention to, because actually what we pay attention to determines the contents of our consciousness and therefore our emotions. What you pay attention to, both in the outside world, but also in the inside world, determines your confidence. And that's related to a second day. The first one's attention. Second is anxiety. Anxiety is the greatest corrosive of confidence, and confidence is the greatest antidote to anxiety. And if, if you don't feel in control of your emotions, for instance, anxiety, then you won't feel in control of your own future behavior because you can't anticipate how you're going to feel. Very similar psychophysiologically to the emotional energy involved in anger and excitement. And you can harness that as a form of energy. And one way of doing that is to say, actually, if I do this thing in spite of feeling anxious, that actually is a huge source of confidence. It's doing something in spite of adversity. That's like a social media feed. And what that can do is just make us more and more anxious. If we get more and more anxious and we only perceive threat in the world, that will make us feel helpless and out of control. And when we feel helpless and out of control and anxious, that's a huge degrader of confidence. Feeling inadequate in comparison to some supermodel celebrity influencer, constantly feeling lacking, which is the kind of low self-esteem that can arise from constantly comparing yourself to other people who are very difficult to beat in any dimension that you're important to you. It's very easy to shift to jujitsu anxiety into excitement or excitement into anxiety or anxiety into anger, or anger into anxiety. It's very easy for these emotions to be changed depending on what we say to ourselves. It gives you a sense of purpose and mission and going forward. Whereas Mark Twain said, it does more damage to the vessel that holds it. And that's true also. It depends what you do with it. So the critical thing about anger is not to feel diffusely angry about how the world is being run, or, you know, just anger in general. You need to be angry at a specific person or group. You're harnessing it into a, a, a fuel, and that fuel empowers confidence. And the successes you achieve along the way will, will boost that confidence. And of course, confidence is most powerful when it's collective. So the individual ego is less vulnerable when you have a collective action and a collective confidence. The thing about confidence is that some people are plagued by 
procrastination and being constantly overwhelmed by things. So goal setting is, I'd say, one of the most powerful ways of activating the reward network. And if you activate the reward network, you will lift confidence. Even mundane successes make future successes more likely. They work according to compound interest, just like confidence. Confidence requires us to, to play a role sometimes. There's an element of faking it till you make it. And we all feel a bit like an imposter, you know, as we go on, we say, God, do I really deserve this? And that's a healthy balance between benefiting from the success, but also having a degree of self-awareness and the empathy that goes with self-awareness. Your upbringing, your trainers, the privilege you had, luck's a huge part of it. I mean, for every madly rich entrepreneur, there's a thousand equally talented, equally hard working entrepreneurs who just didn't happen to have the luck. It was just the wrong time. So most great success is huge percentage luck. And if you're really successful, you should be grateful and humble about that. Well, who am I? What do I stand for? And the great thing about values, if you articulate them and remind yourself of what your values are and why you hold them. Values are immortal in a way that you're not. And so preserving of my self-esteem, trying to live forever kind of narrative that goes on with these most many of these rich people. I think, of course, there are some who are, but on average, they, they don't have that salesmanship because confidence is a kind of salesmanship of the brand of your ego. There's a bit of that, you know, although often it's like that. It doesn't have to be like that. It can be the quietly confident, I can do this without all the kind of narcissistic stuff that goes with it. The notion of decentering which is very big in psychology now, the idea that you can look at yourself a bit in the third person, talk to yourself, and rather than immerse yourself in the emotion that feels that's me, my anxiety or my anger, rather kind of have a kind of wry watcher look decentered on, on yourself. It's an incredibly powerful way of, of defusing some of these particularly negative emotions. And that comes directly from the Buddhist tradition, that notion of decentering, that notion of mindful watching, not getting too, realizing you are not your thoughts, you are not your emotions. And then skills that were previously seen as valuable are going to be, there'll still be a need for smart people, but their smartness is going to be hugely devalued. Suddenly, what, how do we, particularly college educated middle class people, how, what's going to be the basis of their self-esteem? Three things about this. What well, One is, what do we have that chat GPT does? Well, first of all, we have bodies. And the second thing we have is each other. We have the capacity for immense positive things coming out, the spreading of ideas and the spread, if we can work together. So we have that. And the third thing we have is we're part of nature, which ChatGPT is not part of nature. We are biological entities who are actually connected to the, the natural world. And, and the fourth thing we have is values. We have values. We have a biologically programmed sense of what is good. So I think there's a potential for people to be much happier. However, People's needs need to be satisfied for housing, for food, for transport. And that's why the economic system has to change. We cannot have more and more people becoming more and more fabulously rich at the expense of everyone else. That's a doomsday scenario. So I think there's a real possibility that AI can be our friend, can free us up to ride that four-legged horse. But we have to have the, the confidence to work together to create that. I've heard a lot of big tech people, they, they, they don't walk the walk for their own children. The company TikTok was fined 350 million, approximately euro, by the Irish regulator for processes involved in protecting younger users on their platform. And the EU has been in the forefront of trying to rein in big tech, but so far with relatively little success. Jonathan Haidt, the, the great psychologist of moral behavior, 
he's been documenting this quite awful rise in psychological distress of various kinds among teenagers. And he and others have identified it as happening the inflection point was around 2012, which was really about the time that Facebook and other social media platforms really took off. So we have got a real crisis for our young people. Just the use of eight-year-old children with fully pop computers in their pockets who are able to access porn and all sorts of ghastly stuff. I mean, the effects in the brain, or say of young of boys or young men being exposed to the worst kinds of porn, that is just a ghastly, ghastly scenario, as bad as drugs. So I, I think there are big risks, and I think we just have to get the regulation in here very, very seriously. So air pollution and water pollution are, are just two huge challenges for brain health. And of course, if the health of the brain is compromised and everything is compromised, all other aspects of health, and then down the road, as we live longer and longer, we're expecting dementia rates to triple, which are already really high. And looking after dementia costs more than cancer, stroke and heart disease combined. And this is going to hit low and middle income countries even more than rich countries. So we, we have this real crisis of late life dementia. All these things that compromise the brain earlier in life, including pollution, including poor diet, including high levels of continual stress. All of these things will back up and exaggerate this awful impending threat to brain health, to late life dementia. What Ireland went, went through since independence, it went through decades, generations of real hardship, you know, and it was really in the first years of the, of the country, you know, it was huge immigration, huge lack of industry, and a huge sense of collective pessimism, if you like, made young people leave. As people left, I think largely joining the EU was the, the big factor. People left, but they came back. We know that people who come back after having had exposure to different cultures, different practices, they come back and they revitalize a, a, an economy and, and a collective psychology. And you then develop this very open global economy, which, however, because it was so open and because it maybe became a bit overconfident during the Kelty Tiger, had the biggest drop in, in global GNP of any industrialized country at the Great Recession of 2007-8-9. And it was just a huge mass unemployment, pay cuts, just really. And what struck me about that, because I was living through that, I just had such admiration for the grit and the resilience how people got through that. And that was because there was a cultural history of very tough times and they came through. And so they had learned to deal with tough times. And so we came through that and now regained and rebuilt. And that sense of getting through, just putting one step in front of yourself in spite of adversity, in spite of not knowing exactly where you're going. The Afghanistani poet in 12th century, 1200 said, the road only appears with the first step. Well, Ireland kept taking the first step out of that recession. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.